Welcome to Beaver Lodge Alliance's sermon podcast. We're so glad to join you. This is the latest sermon. We pray that you would receive encouragement, exhortation, and that Jesus would speak to you through this sermon. Enjoy. Well, we are a celebrity-obsessed culture, aren't we? We're a celebrity-obsessed culture, and it's not anything that's new. When I was a kid, um, Wheaties, you guys remember the cereal Wheaties? You might still eat it. It was really big in the States, but I don't know how big it is up here. But Wheaties um, was called the Breakfast of Champions, and they always had famous athletes Uh, They tried to have all the Olympians on their boxes and famous athletes eating their cereal and doing stuff like that. Do you guys remember, if you can remember back, you know, 30 years ago or so, uh, do you remember who, like, one of the most famous athletes was who was on the box of Wheaties? Anybody want to throw out a guess? Michael Jordan. Yeah, who said that? That was fantastic. Yeah, Michael Jordan. So the famous basketball star Michael Jordan ate his Wheaties, and that's how he became so great. So every kid that ever thought about basketball was just eating their Wheaties like crazy, trying to be as amazing as Michael Jordan. Of course, Michael Jordan also advertised for Nike, Gatorade, McDonald's, Hanes. He made more money in his career through advertising than he ever did through, I guess, I mean, getting paid directly for basketball. Of course, all of his uh, sponsorships were because he was a a great basketball player, but he made tons of money through his sponsorships. Current day, we have uh, athletes like Connor McDavid. You know, we know our famous hockey player, Connor McDavid, uh, who's out of the playoffs now, which is also sad. Uh, But he uh, he was right off the bat. He before I think before he even started playing, he was already doing advertisements. And we all just thought it was terrible. He was the worst actor ever. When he would do these commercials, they were horrible. He was terribly dry. You could tell he was reading straight from the script held up in front of him. We're thankful, though, he's warmed up a little bit, and now he advertises for all kinds of places like Go Auto. And we all go to buy our vehicles from Go Auto now because of Connor McDavid selling, selling vehicles on Go Auto. Sports stars, musicians, Hollywood actors, we love our celebrities and we love to do what our celebrities tell us to do. And in case you think this is just a worldly culture thing, think about the celebrities we have in the Christian world. Now, they don't do commercials and stuff, but we have our own celebrities. Billy Graham, John MacArthur, Christine Kane, Max Lucado, Beth Moore, Charles Stanley, John Eldridge, Joyce Meyer, Francis Chan, just to name a few. Those are just like preachers and speakers and authors that we all know and love, and we, we have their books, and we listen to them speak, and when they say something, it holds a lot of weight. We put these people up on pedestals for good or for bad, and sometimes we give them more power than we should in our life. You know, as an example, if I told you a biblical truth this morning, which I'm going to do, you'll listen, and you'll appreciate it, and it'll land somewhere for you. But if I told you the same biblical truth, and I said that C.S. Lewis said this, or A.W. Tozer said this, or Brene Brown said this, you would sit up and take notice a little bit more because a celebrity said it. Now, this is not really a problem. God has given wisdom and creativity to people. We're made in God's image, and, and people like Charles Stanley and Joyce Meyer have the ability, the ability to display his character to the world, 
in a way that includes saying biblical things in really memorable and exciting ways. So it's not a problem that we remember that A.W. Tozer said such and such or C.S. Lewis said such and such. The problem comes when we put these celebrities up on these high pedestals and forget that they have feet of clay. You see, we sometimes idolize our celebrities and sometimes they let us down. More often than not, they do. Sometimes even, not just do they fall short of our expectations of them, but sometimes pride builds up in their hearts. And like my mom used to say, they think that they're the best thing since sliced bread. You like that, mom? It's good. I remember. I remember these things. There were some other quotes you gave me that I'm not going to repeat right now, but it's good stuff. When this happens, when our celebrities fail us, even our Christian leaders and speakers and pastors, when they fall to the egotistical trap of power and leadership, it causes great difficulty for us. And sometimes we even see our leaders fall to even more damaging and sinful things. Let's watch this video really quickly as we get into our message. Recent media reports have uncovered multiple situations of abusive leadership styles in the church. Consequently, North America is watching a public unveiling of negative consequences of what Jesus warned against in Luke 22, 24-27. Here Jesus cautions the disciples of humanity's tendency towards power and rulership over others, while instead inviting the disciples to join him in the way of the servant. As a result of what feels like a never-ending string of reports of hidden leadership abuse, the church is waking up to recognize the part she has played in not only hiding, but nurturing pockets of the culture one can only describe as toxic, manipulative, and even abusive. It may be tempting to place sole responsibility for this issue upon a specific era or leadership style. However, in light of Luke 22, it seems most likely that the church finds herself in a culture that has been forming for centuries. Furthermore, while it is also tempting to apply a different leadership style to course correct for the future, it is important to remember Christ's model of servant leadership as a timeless kingdom truth, which is possible and transformative throughout all contexts and eras. Simultaneous with the abuse discoveries, two seemingly related paradigm shifts are occurring. The first is a shift in the broader culture, away from individual leadership and towards team leadership, where communities co-create and co-own their way forward. The second is a move of the Holy Spirit, elevating the need for a fuller gospel, where shalom and goodness are of high value, where people experience the healing of Jesus' restorative good news in all areas of life. These two moves converge to provide a kinder, more empowering option for a society in dire need of healing sanctuaries. In some of our previous shift messages, um, we've spoken about some of the uh, cultural changes that are happening around us that potentially have some negative uh, parts to them, uh, some things that are, we need to look at because there's some drastic, difficult things happening in our world. But in our topic for today, there's a positive cultural shift that's happening right now that is really exciting. It's a, way, a, a movement away from power leadership which sometimes has very abusive parts to it, to servant leadership, which is quite an exciting shift that's happening. 
The, the, the problem that's been happening all around us is that big-time Christian celebrity leaders have been in the high headlines for terrible, terrible things. Uh, mostly we've seen, I mean, not mostly, but many times we've seen uh, uh, scandalous abuses of power happening within the church. Now, this has happened in the regular society lots. We see CEOs of companies who um, have stolen money or they've held back information or they've done all kinds of things that are terrible. But this is happening as well within the church of Jesus Christ. And this is a terribly scary thing as we see this happen with people uh, who are meant to be portraying and showing the love of Jesus to the world. And it's not just happening with leaders. It's not just happening with people that we see on the tabloids. We're seeing this in local churches too. Now, we may not hear about it as uh, it doesn't hit the headlines as much when a church of, you know, two or three hundred has a difficulty with a pastor, but we're seeing this happen at all kinds of, of levels. Abusive power leadership is sinful, and it's a toxic leadership style that's uh, wreaking havoc amongst many people in the world and especially amongst Christians. Now, back in 1970, there was a, uh, a leadership guru uh, who was teaching on, on leadership things, and he came up with a term that was new to the world at the time, and it was the term servant leadership. When you look up servant leadership now, you see that it mostly comes out of the work out of a guy named Robert K. Greenleaf back in 1970. It's amazing that it took until 1970 for the world to really understand this idea of servant leadership. Well, nowadays, uh, there's tons of books written about it. Even our beloved Brene Brown, which many people love to quote, has a book called Dare to Lead on Servant Leadership. And you probably know this already, but servant leadership, though it is kind of becoming big in the world right now, it's something that started many, many years before 1970. In a wonderful way, Christianity is leading in this kind of a cultural shift. We've been talking about servant leadership for 2,000 years now. In fact, Jesus was the one that began teaching about servant leadership. He looked around at the leaders that were there in his time. He looked at the government officials, Pontius Pilate and Caesar and other people that were leading, Herod and those type of people that were leading the, the Roman Empire, and he talked about their leadership. He talked about the leadership of the Pharisees and the Sadducees as they were leading the, the, what was supposed to be the church of God at the moment. And he spoke about all these different things, and he began to teach about a different type of leadership, servant leadership. And I'm not going to spend much time talking about the cultural shift from power leadership to servant leadership today. I'm going to spend time just looking at what Jesus said about these things. In Luke chapter 22, we're going to spend our, most of our time in that passage there, but I need to give you a bigger picture of what's going on, because we all know when we look at what Scripture says to us, we don't look at it as an isolated chapter or paragraph or verse. We look at the context of what was happening at the time, and the reason we look at the context is for the most part, God wants to speak to us in a big story. He wants to teach us things, not just one verse where we take one verse out of context and read it. He wants to teach us something, a larger principle that's going on here. I want to take a, a quick little sidestep here and give you a fun little teaching moment, uh, which is not directly related to our topic today, but I, I think it's a valuable thing for us just to learn. If you're unfamiliar with this, there are, uh, in the Bible, there are 66 books altogether in the whole Bible. 
There is 39 in the Old Testament. That's the time that came before Jesus. And then there's 27 in the New Testament. That's the time that came when Jesus came and then after Jesus. Now, in the New Testament, there are four books in particular that talk about the life of Jesus, and we call them the Gospels. And there's four of them. There are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the four Gospel uh, books in the New Testament. And we look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and there's another distinction there. We call them the synoptic Gospels because Matthew, Mark, and Luke follow each other fairly closely. They tell a lot of the same stories. They mostly tell these stories kind of in the same kind of an order. Uh, And so we call them the synoptic Gospels. And then John kind of stands alone uh, off to the side because it tells a bunch of stories that aren't located in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. So it's kind of a different Gospel all on its own. Now, when the gospel writers tell their stories, all three, all four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when they tell their stories, uh, they sometimes put them in different order. So, so they'll talk about this thing that Jesus did, and then they'll talk about this thing that Jesus did, but a different gospel writer will talk about this thing, and then this thing that Jesus did, and sometimes come back to this other story back here and put it over here. Now, it's not a problem because when the gospel writers were writing, at the time they were writing, the people were not so worried about having a chronological order of events. What they were hoping to do is to hear a narrative. Tell us the story of Jesus and help us understand it in a way that's going to teach us a lesson. So the gospel writers would often group things together that were on the same theme. We do the same thing today. Actually, many authors will say that the worst way that you can tell a story is to start at the beginning and end at the end. That's some of the worst storytelling. Sometimes, to tell a good story, you've got to start at the end, and then you tell how you got there. Or you tell these stories about what happened over here, and then you tell these stories about whatever happened over here, and then you jump back to the middle of the story. It's, it's actually really good. I love when I watch a movie nowadays or read a book nowadays where the author is not so stuck to telling the story in chronological order, but actually kind of jumps around a little bit to get your brain moving and thinking. And this is what the gospel writers did, is they kind of moved around a little bit in the story so that we would get the basic understanding of what was going on. So these gospel writers do this, and so one of the things we're going to see as we go through this passage today is that Matthew and Mark tell the story, and Luke starts together with them as they're telling the story, and then Luke kind of goes over and tells some other stories while Matthew and Mark keep on going here, and then Luke comes back and pulls in this story over here back over to here. So as you're going to see this in a moment, it's kind of really fun the way they do this, but they do that for a very specific reason, and so that we can understand what Jesus is trying to get across in a different and unique way. The other thing that we need to know about the Gospels is oftentimes when we read the Gospels, we wonder, why did Matthew tell the story this way, while Luke told the story this way? Because they sometimes focus on different things. And the reason is mostly because they're they're speaking to different audiences, Matthew dealt with mostly a a Jewish audience, and that was his main purpose, was to tell the Jewish people who this Jesus was. Whereas uh, Luke was really kind of talking to a non-Jewish crowd, but he was kind of trying to give, Luke was a doctor, he was trying to give really an orderly account of what went on. So Luke, Luke reads a little more clinically when you read Luke. Then when you get to John, you're in a totally different gospel altogether. John is just like, hey man, 
Jesus loves me, and that's what I want everybody to know. So John's gospel is like lovey-dovey feelings and gooey flowers and all that kind of stuff. I happen to love it, but some people, it's just not your cup of tea. But John is just like this lovey-dovey kind of a book. So anyhow, that's just kind of an aside so you understand why the authors wrote the way that they did. They wrote different audiences and in different ways, all trying to get the story of Jesus across. So we're going to go into these stories, mostly sticking into Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because they tell, they tell the story that we're trying to get to here about servant leadership in really unique ways. So here are the stories we're going to look at, and I want you to be thinking as we walk through this, what are the authors, the Holy Spirit ultimately, because you know the Holy Spirit wrote the Bible, but he used different authors, what are the authors trying to tell us about servant leadership here? So we begin in Matthew, Mark, and Luke at the beginning part, which is good, around Matthew 19, Mark 10, and Luke 18 is kind of where we're starting. And these stories all begin with the same story about little children being brought to Jesus. They begin to paint us a picture about the kingdom of God and ultimately about the kind of leader that Jesus is and the kind of leader Jesus wants us to be. So let's watch this. We're going to read in Matthew chapter 19, but this same story is in Matthew 19, Mark 10, and Luke 18. But here's the story from Matthew. Then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. Now listen, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. That's the story. That's it. Jesus starts this story by saying something super interesting for us. The kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Now, the very next story in all three Gospels is the story of the rich young man, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago. This rich young man actually has done well in life, and he's done it well. He's done well in life well. He's been a good person. He's been honorable. He's been loving. He's been kind. He's followed the commandments. He's been a good Jewish man, and he's done well for himself. It's the story of the rich young man, and, and Jesus and him talk about all the good things he's done. The conversation begins, you know, have you followed the commandments? And the, the rich young man says, yeah, I've followed them since I was a child. Like, I've always done what's right. So Jesus says, man, that's, that's pretty good. Okay, all you have to do is go give everything you have away and then come follow me. And it says, the rich young man goes away sad because he had so much wealth. And then Jesus says this. Remember, this is coming off of the story of the children being brought to Jesus. And Jesus says, the, the, the kingdom of God is for these. And then this rich young man comes along and Jesus says this, I tell you the truth, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. About the children, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And about the rich young man, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. As the Holy Spirit begins to speak this to the audience, we begin to put these stories together. And there's a reason for these stories being side by side, because something important is being taught here. But the story is not done yet, so let's keep on looking. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus tells a, a parable in here called the Parable of the Workers in the Vineyard. We're not going to look at that today. It's a good read for you later, so go take a look at it read later. 
But, but aside from that one little parable that's taught in here, all three Gospels go directly to this next story where Jesus begins to talk about his imminent death and resurrection. He begins to talk about the fact that he's about to go and die. Now, after that is where the Gospels go in slightly different directions. So they've told these three stories, the children, the rich young man, and Jesus predicting his imminent death and resurrection. And the Gospels go in slightly different directions here. Matthew and Mark tell a very similar story about James and John wanting to sit on Jesus' left and right sides when Jesus enters his kingdom. The only difference in these two stories is in Matthew, it's James and John's mother who comes forward to say, hey, Jesus, get my boys on your left and your right. In Mark, it's James and John themselves that come to say, hey, Jesus, can we sit on your left and right? It doesn't matter who said it, because likely they were in cahoots. It'd be like me and my mom going, okay, you go talk to Jesus, and then I'm going to talk to Jesus, and we're going to see if I can get into this power place, right? I can get in Jesus' right or left-hand side. Okay, so it doesn't matter who went to Jesus initially, because the topic of the conversation is the same. James and John are looking for power. They want power when Jesus comes into his kingdom. Now, this request is audacious, and not in a good way. They want power, authority, and rulership in the kingdom of heaven. These boys, James and John, who are nicknamed the Sons of Thunder, which I think is a very appropriate nickname for them, they're asking to be greater than all the other disciples. They're asking Jesus, we want to be greater than everybody else here. We want standing. We want stature. We want power. And you can see that this would obviously get the disciples upset, right? The other disciples, they're sitting around and they hear this happen. Whether they overhear James's and John's mother saying this or they see, hear James and John saying it or however they hear it, they hear about this and they get upset. I know I would get upset about this. Now, I'm not going to tell you what Jesus says to them yet because I want you to see how Luke gets to this same point in the story. So we're going to hang on to Matthew and Mark for now. So we're going to put it up on a shelf so we know that Matthew and Mark have had this story going along which ends with this debate amongst the disciples, this argument amongst them about who is the greatest. James and John, are they the greatest? Or Peter, or, or who's, who's the greatest? So we're going to put that on the shelf for a second, okay? So just Matthew and Mark are going to hang out over here for a minute. And we're going to look into Luke to see what Luke does. Because Luke, Luke diverges a little bit at this point in the story and goes to, into a whole bunch of other stories before he comes back around to this moment. Luke goes from Jesus' story about his imminent death and resurrection to the story of Zacchaeus. And we looked at that a couple of weeks ago, but we'll quickly look at the story of Zacchaeus. But I want to catch you up really quickly so we all know where we're at. First, in this long story, Jesus invites the little children, saying, The kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Then Jesus meets the rich young man, saying, I tell you the truth, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Then Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. And now in Luke, Jesus interacts with Zacchaeus who everybody knows is a dirty, rotten tax collector. Now, so Jesus just met with a rich young man who was a really good Jewish man who's kept all the laws since he was a child. And here we have the story of Zacchaeus, who has not kept all the laws since he was a child. 
Everybody knew this was not a good Jewish person. This is a bad Jewish man. Bad, bad, bad. And Jesus meets with this dirty, rotten tax collector. And if you remember the story, after meeting Jesus, like immediately after meeting Jesus, in, this, in the way that, that Luke tells this story, there is no pause between Jesus showing up and Zacchaeus saying, all right, I'm going to give everything I have away. There's almost no moment between the two. Zacchaeus meets Jesus, and almost his immediate response to Jesus, he says it, I'm going to give away half of everything that I have to the poor. And it's not like he's keeping the other half and still living a fairly rich life. The other half he's using to pay back anybody who thinks that he's done them wrong, more than he took from them. So he just gives it all away. This is Zacchaeus saying, I'm giving everything I've got away. It's the response we would have expected from the rich young man who doesn't do that. It's not the response we would expect from the dirty, rotten tax collector. But Zacchaeus gives everything he has away, which leads Luke to to write down Jesus' words here, today salvation has come to this house. We begin to see several themes coming up here, but I wonder if you see the theme of leadership coming through here. Now, Luke diverts here for a few stories. He tells a couple of other stories that are somewhat connected to this theme, but somewhat not connected. So we're not going to look at these other stories. We're going to jump right to chapter 22 in Luke, where we're going to spend a chunk of time here. So we pick up in Luke 22, the same thing that Matthew and Mark, see they're on the shelf over here, Matthew and Mark are trying to develop. So here's what happens in Luke chapter 22. Jesus sits down with his disciples for the Passover feast. This is the night that Jesus was betrayed. He has this last meal with his disciples, and they're going to go to the garden, and he's going to be betrayed. He's going to be crucified the next day. All kinds of stuff is about to happen. And Jesus is spending this last night, this last supper with his closest friends. The location that they're in is intimate. It's not the thousands of people that we've read about before. It's not even the hundreds of people that we've read about before. It seems like this is just 13 people, and that's it. Jesus and the 12 disciples in this very intimate location. They're all reclining around their table. And in in Jewish custom, the table would be kind of this high. They'd all lay down around the table with kind of their feet away a little bit slanted and their heads kind of propped up on an elbow here, sometimes leaning against each other. It was incredibly intimate and connected, and they were all in this space where Jesus is spending this intimate time with them, reclining around the table. And we know from the other Gospels that leading up to this meal, Jesus has washed everybody's feet which was not the job for a master. I mean, today we wouldn't even see that. If we saw a CEO of a company washing the feet of his employees, we'd go, what are you doing? This is crazy. Get somebody else to do this. This is not the job of a master. This is the job of of a servant, somebody at least at minimum wage, like not a CEO, not a master. But Jesus is always embodying the highest form of leadership, which here is this servant leadership. Jesus is loving his disciples well. He's hanging out with them. He's washing their feet. He's serving them. He's loving them. He's leading them. It would have been a beautiful moment. It would have been an awkward moment, but a beautiful moment. Now listen as I read this story to you from Luke 22. Just listen. It's not going to be up on the screen. I want you just to listen to this. In Luke chapter 22, verse 14. 
When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, just listen to Jesus' words, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds its fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you that I will not drink it again. From, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. There's a finality to Jesus' words. There's a heaviness. There's a deepness here. There's, there's something that Jesus is sharing with his disciples that he doesn't share with anybody else. And they would have been leaning into every word that he spoke. And he took bread, gave thanks, and he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. It's also beautiful, isn't it? It is wonderful and it's amazing. Jesus serving, Jesus loving, Jesus leading his disciples. And then Jesus goes on to say this. Now listen to the emotion that pulls up here. Jesus says, But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. I wonder at this moment, you, you, you see Jesus say, reveal that, that the person who's going to betray him is here in this intimate group of people. And you see Jesus' heart goes out to this person, woe to him, woe to him, who this is going to come through. And the disciples begin to argue amongst themselves about who it is that's doing this. And I guarantee, I shouldn't guarantee, I have a high, strong feeling that not one of them said, I wonder if it's me. Likely, what would have happened is they would have gone, I bet it's you. I bet it's you. It couldn't be me. <laughs> I think it's you. Because this conversation begins to turn into egotistical feelings of self-righteousness and self-importance. And it leads to this. In Luke 19.24, the very next sentence, A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. I would never betray Jesus. I'm actually, <laughs> I'm his second in command. No, 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 no. I would never betray Jesus because I'm, I'm the one he loves the most. He's told me so, right? I would never betray Jesus. I'm willing to die for him. And you could hear in the characters, the disciples, all the different things they would begin to say. And they begin to start saying, I think I'm the greatest. You guys should follow me. They go from this beautiful moment with Jesus to accusing the others of betraying Jesus to declaring their own greatness. It's amazing how quickly people lose the plot of what is, what is happening around them, isn't it? Jesus had just washed their feet and he had laid around the table with them, serving them, speaking about his coming death, speaking about his love for them, his body broken for them. 
His blood shed for them. And then Jesus says, one of you who's been my closest friends is going to betray me. And the response from the disciples is a conversation that turns into an opportunity to talk about how great they are. We don't know all of what happened in that conversation, but Scripture doesn't record that any of them said, how are you feeling, Jesus? Like, how are you doing? It's here that Luke comes back around to this conversation that Matthew and Mark had gotten to earlier. In in the James and John incident of Matthew and Mark, Matthew and Mark go from the James and Don, who's the greatest, I want to sit on your left and your right, that conversation into this paragraph. It takes Luke a little longer. Luke places it at the end of the Passover meal when the disciples are arguing amongst themselves, who's greatest, who's greatest, who's greatest, that, that Luke pulls this paragraph out. And it's, it's, it's a, almost the exact same paragraph, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, just in a different sequence of events, almost word for word, the exact same paragraph. But, but let's see how we got here. First, Jesus spoke about the little children, and he said, the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Then the rich young man comes along and and Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Then Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. Then in Luke, Jesus interacts with Zacchaeus, who gives all his money away, leading Jesus to say, today salvation has come to this house. Matthew and Mark have the story about James and John trying to be great. and, And then in the Luke story, we have the argument amongst the disciples about who is the greatest just after Jesus had washed their feet and served them the Passover meal, connecting it to his death. Now, imagine Jesus in these two places, whether it's with the James and John conversation or whether it's the conversation around the Passover table. Imagine Jesus in this space for a moment, this kind of a place. Imagine ourselves there in that place with Jesus in the room. Imagine Jesus doing all these things, listening to us talk about which one of us is the greatest. And imagine Jesus, you know, with these kids that we just had come up on the front. Imagine Jesus sitting with them and him saying, hey, the the kingdom of God belongs to these. Imagine a rich man coming in the door and Jesus say, come follow me. And the rich man walks away sad because he won't give away his wealth. And Jesus saying, it's hard for a rich man to come to heaven. Imagine somebody else coming into the room that we all despise. Some other rich man who's done us all wrong coming into the room and finding salvation in Jesus because he humbled himself and gave all he had away. Imagine before you walked in the building this morning that Jesus stopped you at the doors, took off your shoes, and washed your feet. Imagine Jesus serving us communion. We have communion once a month. Imagine Jesus walking around with the the juice and the bread and serving you communion. And I want you to do something. Turn to your neighbor right now, and I want you just to say this to your neighbor, I am the greatest. Say that to your neighbor right now. (laughs) That feels hard, right? (laughs) You guys are kind of like, That'd be a crazy thing to do. 
at the end of those events, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be weird? That would be awkward. That would be weird. Now hear the words of Jesus as he answers his disciples and you and me as we all argue about how great we are. This is coming out of Matthew chapter 20, but Matthew 20, Mark 10, and Luke 22 say this almost word for word. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, here's the thing. The greatest power that has ever been shown, the greatest power move that's ever been accomplished in all of the universe and all of history was not some conquering of some great civilization. It was not the takeover of some massive corporation. It wasn't the billion-dollar profiting of some tycoon. The greatest power move ever accomplished was Jesus giving his life away as a ransom for many. The creator of the universe, the creator of the universe, like we can't fathom that. We can't fathom that. The creator of the universe humbled himself, became like a servant, like a slave, and died on the cross for us. And this is the example that Jesus gives of true power. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, the kingdom of God is all about servant leadership. Servant leaders serving right where they are. The people, men and women of God, serving, serving, serving. Michael Jordan, Connor McDavid, Billy Graham, Charles Stanley, Joyce Meyer, Brene Brown, celebrities, superstars, leaders. Thankfully, the world today is beginning to look past the stat sheets, past the book deals, past the quotable quotes. The world is looking past all of this and looking for servant leaders who lead humbly and lovingly, just like Jesus led Jesus invites us to the greatest type of leadership, servant leadership. And our, our, our culture, our culture, it's so beautiful, our culture, culture, culture is begging to see what servant leadership really looks like. So what do you think would change in your own life that would help you to step more into servant leadership? What, what would it look like if you stepped more into servant leadership in your own life? What would it look like in your workplace? I don't know if you're a boss. Everybody's probably a boss of somebody. But it, I don't know, if, what would it look like if you, if you led like a servant, like Jesus? What would it look like in your neighborhood with, with the people that live next door to you or across the street from you? What would it look like to lead like Jesus? What would it look like to be a servant leader in your home? What would that look like? What would servant leadership look like in all the different spheres of your life? 
I remember hearing this quote. I'm going to quote a famous person because that's what we do. <laughs> but I remember hearing this quote and I was thinking, that's, that's it. Towards the end of her life, the now deceased Queen of England was giving an interview and when asked what she would love to still see in her lifetime, she had ruled for so many years and, and someone met with her late into her life just a few years ago and asked her, what would you still like to see in your lifetime? You've seen so much. You've seen so much. What would you still like to see? And she said, I'd like to see Jesus come back. Which the interviewer was kind of surprised by that. Okay. Well, that makes sense, I guess. Why, why would you like to see Jesus come back? <clears throat> she said, I just so would love to be able to put my crown at his feet. Isn't that good? Just so good. Servant leaders realize that they serve because Jesus served. Because Jesus served. But they also realize that in the end, they serve because it all belongs to Jesus anyways. This is his. This is his. We don't own any of this stuff. We serve because it belongs to him. Jesus, it's yours. We're going to close with a new song by Matt Marr. It's, uh, it's the Lord's Prayer. And as we sing it together, I want you to consider how the Lord's Prayer invites us to servant leadership. And then I'll come back up for the benediction. So I wonder if you would start, as we do this benediction, start by, you can put your hands in front of you if you want. I, I suggest it. And just imagine all that you are in charge of in your hands. Everything you're in charge of. All the stuff. Whether you're in charge of stuff at your workplace, whether you're in charge of stuff in your neighborhood, whether you're in charge of stuff in your home, all the stuff that you're in charge of. Your position in your family. Just all the stuff. Everything you're in charge of in your hands. And just with open hands, just give it all to Jesus. It's yours, Jesus. It's yours, Jesus. This is all yours. This is all yours. I think of my own life. I think of this, this church. I think of my position in this community. I think of my, my place as a husband and a father. My, my position with my neighbors. I just lay it all before you, Jesus. It's yours. It's yours. And now, Jesus, we know that you have put us in these places so that we can declare your goodness. We can declare your hope and your love to the world. And we know the way that you've given us to do that, and that's through servant leadership. And every single one of us has a chance to lead somewhere in our lives as a servant. And so, church, I just bless you today to know how you can lead like Jesus in all the different areas in your life, the way that you can lead like Jesus. And so I just bless you. I bless you now to know Jesus deeply, to understand his will and his desire for you and for your, your community, that you would lead in a way that shows the amazing, massive, and wonderful love of Jesus to the world, that people would know how much they are loved and they would be wooed by his spirit to come into relationship with him. Our desire, God, is that the world would know you, that many would be saved, that many would be delivered, that many would be healed, Lord. And so use us, I bless you, church, to walk in the way of Jesus deeply.
today, tomorrow, and the weeks and months and years to come. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. Amen. Just before we go, if you don't know Jesus yet, if you're in a place where you're hearing about Jesus and the things that he's done and you're kind of thinking, man, I'd like to know this guy. He loves you. He cares for you. He desires to know you. Don't be like the rich young man that walked away sad and stopped and didn't follow Jesus. Be like Zacchaeus who's willing to put it all down and follow Jesus. If you want to know more about Jesus today, come talk to me today. I'd love to tell you more about Jesus and maybe introduce you to him in a way that would change your life forever. If you want prayer today, if you've got something you're carrying, some difficulty, some hardship, or you just want to come up and just shake my hand, (laughs) we're going to have some people up here for prayer. We've got a couple of elders in the room that are going to be up here at the front that love to pray with you. Uh, Just come forward, meet one of us, and be prayed for. But other than that, you're dismissed. Go in peace. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. If you'd like more information about us or find out ways to contact us, visit our website at www.beaverlodgealliancechurch.com. We pray today that you would experience the love, presence, and power of Jesus Christ and then make him known.